Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we have all new friends for an amazing episode. We talk about some real actions for change. Amity Pei is the Senior Director of Communications at Color of Change. Amity oversees the organization's media strategy, social media, design, production, and partnerships to make Color of Change a household name. Her team uses media coverage, social media, design, and video production to add pressure during campaigns and publicize some of the organization's most important victories on tech accountability, transforming entertainment industries, and criminal justice reform. Remember the Golden Globes? how they were canceled this year? We talk about it on the show. Carmen Morales. Carmen has been seen on two seasons of the TV show Laughs on Fox. She's also been seen on Showtime, IFC, Hulu, and heard on Sirius XM Radio in the United States and Canada. She's been featured in Gilda's Laugh Fest comedy, Women of Comedy Festival, and in the New York Times. And you can see her on the latest installment, yes, debuted on May 6th, the HBO's hit comedy series on Trey No on HBO Max. Akeem Woods. Akeem is that funny little brother you always never wanted. And I can attest to that. Akeem was a semi-finalist on Stand Up NBC. He has been seen on Kevin Hart's LOL Network. And he made his late night debut on The Late Late Show with James Corden. Currently, you can find Akeem working on a new show for BET. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcast Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. That's important. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcasts at gmail.com. Instagram is friendslikeuspodcasts. And Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip. Or a donation by going to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash Friends Like Us. Special shout out to those Patreon friends. TV, thank you so much. Leah, thank you for your donations. It's because of you we keep going. Merch is available. We have t-shirts. We have hoodies. We have coffee mugs, face masks, and tank tops. All available. Just go to marinafranklin.com. Weekly on my YouTube channel, I go live with my assistant, Evelyn Frick, and my wacky friend, Dave Jeskow. We give updates to the show, shout out fans who leave reviews, and we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by, and sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. And with friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask still if you want to. Get vaccinated. Booster up. And Black Lives Matter. It is an honor to have the guest and guests that I have today. Um, you know, we're like I was saying before, Amity, that we're all comedians, but you really are like I follow Color of Change, so I'm really happy to have you here today. Um, Akeem is a young star, young comedian. He doesn't think he is, by the way. He's always <laughs> telling me he's grown up. That's what young kids do. But Akeem is a rising star in the comedy scene, you know, working at the Comedy Cellar, touring with people like, you know, Godfrey. He's, you know, features for Godfrey all over. Like, how did that happen, Akeem? Like, how did Godfrey pick you as a feature act? <laughs> we met like five or six years ago in Orlando. I was hosting for him. And we got along really well. But also the feature 
sucked that weekend. I don't remember who it was, but he just wasn't good. And he was doing so poorly that Godfrey came up to me. He's like, yo, can you just do time in the middle? Like, because I can't, I'm tired of going up after this dude who keeps bombing. So the feature would go up and bomb. And then I'd go up and do like 10 minutes and then bring up Godfrey. And we just did that all weekend. And then afterwards, we just tra- we just traded numbers. And he was like, hey, if you're ever in New York, text me, call me, whatever. And then we just ended up being on the road together for like the last like almost five years now. Nice. Yeah, five years? Yeah. That long? Yeah, I've known him for almost six years and I've been on the road with him for about five, yeah. And I know that um, Godfrey is very picky with who he has opening for him. So you you must be funny. No, (laughs) I know you're funny. (laughs) I know you're hysterical. Thank you. And Amity, can you tell us a little bit more though about Color of Change and what it is and and how and what your position is over at Color of Change because I get texts from them all the time and I think I give you guys money. I try my best. <laughs> yeah, well, so Color of Change is the largest online racial justice organization in the company in the country. We're really focused on helping people find sort of tangible things that they can do to use their power and enact change. Um, and so you know we pressure decision makers and lawmakers, corporations across the country to sort of make a better and more just world for Black people in our country. Um, And so, you know, that means looking at everything from sort of like how Black people are treated online, you know, and and looking at the ways that there's disinformation campaigns against us. Um, But we're also looking at like you know, diversity and representation in the music industry and in, you know, all uh, all of the entertainment industries. And, you know, we do criminal justice work. So we really have a range of sort of uh, priorities across across the country. When did Color of Change start? We founded uh, just after Hurricane Katrina. Um, if, if folks remember Kanye West said like, you know, George Bush doesn't care about black people. That was actually the thing that started color of change. We had our, our founders were like, you know what, like, that's right. Um, and, and we also have collective power. And so started right after hurricane Katrina, really demanding, um, better treatment, uh, for black people who were, uh, refugees after the hurricane. Um, and then also better laws in place to sort of protect people's land ownership, um, in the years that came afterwards and just grown from there, you know, to grown as an organization and been able to take on more issues. And so worked a lot. And, you know, when George Floyd was killed, we were, we were leading lots of campaigns for police accountability and, um, you know, we're just at the Grammys with an inclusion rider. So, you know, our work has spread out from from the environmental justice that we started with. That's wonderful. I mean, I noticed Color of Change right after George Floyd it was way too late for me, but I was excited to see all of the all of the work that you're doing. And now Carmen has actually joined us, too. So, you know, we were talking about, you know, color of change and we have Akeem here and uh, Carmen is a comedian as well. She's a young comedian who I met in Chicago. And do you know about color of change, Carmen? I also uh, heard about it late. I also heard about it. It was just post uh, George Floyd uh, as well. Um, I didn't know it had been since Katrina. That's that's rad that you guys have done that many things for so long. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, the reason I started the podcast was, you know, initially to give women of color a voice. Akeem, this, you're our, our man for the month. <laughs> um, it's like, you're, you're like our period. That's what we call it. Like we're, we're cycling right now. Um, but, you know, I really started this 
podcast as sort of a forum for women to talk. But then as I, after George Floyd and during the pandemic, it became more solution oriented. So what you're doing is what I'm talking about right now, you know, cause we can all like, you know, comics are truth tellers and, you know, we, we, we get things going, but I like to hear about people who are actually really about it, about it, actually in the fields, doing the work fields. I don't know if that was the right word, but yes, the hands on. Yeah. And <laughs> specifically with the Grammys, you saw like there was a lack of diversity. And then we have in the article actually that I have here. Well, that um, was the whole thing that I, I was always tired of is I, w- I got tired of reading tweets about all the things that we should do. And I was like, where are the receipts at? Where's it? Show me where you, you actually care enough about this, where you're, you're doing something about it. Cause that was the thing I would get, I would get so tired of, especially with like, as someone who tr- tries to be an, an ally and, and whatever, you know, and that term gets thrown around so frivolously, it's like, okay, but, but what are you actually doing? Just say, saying, oh, p- black people should have rights and they should be able to, okay, well, have you done anything at all? Besides just tell your other white friends that, like, have you done anything else at all? Um, uh, because that, that would, that infuriates me. <laughs> no, they did. They changed the profile pictures to black. Remember? Oh, that's true. That's <laughs> yeah. true. Yes. Remember how much Those that helped? Squares. Yes. <laughs> and then people who were actually protesting couldn't communicate with each other because the, their, their timelines were flooded with black squares. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we looked at those black squares and we, you know, we have the, you know, phone numbers for the folks in the companies and we're like, please stop yeah. <laughs> immediately, first off. Um, but yeah, what we did is we took those black squares and we said, okay, like you want to be, you know, out in the world saying Black Lives Matter, like we're going to hold you accountable to that. Right. And so and so what we did is we followed up. Actually, we made a whole list, inventoried all of the companies that put the black squares up, that put up like tweets and, you know, uh, statements on social media. And we we went back to them and we said, great, you said Black Lives Matter. What are you doing internally to reflect that? Um, and so we built out a whole uh, it's called Change Industries. It's a roadmap to racial justice for entertainment industries. And what we've done is we said like, okay, you said Black Lives Matter. How are you reflecting that in your hiring? How are you reflecting that in terms of making your Black employees safe at work in all different ways? How are you, you know, investing in Black communities, right? It's like you can't just show up at a, for a festival and DC, like how are you investing in that community? And so, and so we've we've been working for the last, I guess it's two years now, um, uh, with the companies that put those statements up, um, and actually tracking their progress. So you know, we they set goals with us, um, and they'll say, you know, we're going to diversify, you know, hiring practices, you know, in the next year. We follow up with them every month. And we say, like, how's the progress to goals this month? Like, did you do one twelfth of what you're supposed to do for the year? If not, we have to have a conversation. You're doing something wrong. You have to shift your practices. Um, And we've really been, you know, doing that accountability work that I think folks really want to see. Like, no one wants another statement. Folks want to see receipts. I think you're right, Carmen. Yeah. I think that's what make that's what makes the difference is like as feeling like progress is actually happening instead of people just talking about progress and then that making it feel like it's happening but it's not really happening because then the people who are actually suffering for it uh, are still suffering <laughs> but everybody gets to feel better about themselves which is uh, yeah which is bullshit. So what are 
and you may have already said this, but what are DEI trends in the entertainment industry? What is the, what's the acronym mean? Yeah, so DEI means diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. Okay. Um, and lately they've been adding uh, an A, accessibility to that. So DEIA is what a lot of companies are calling it now. Um, and, you know, DEI is like the diversity work that, you know, folks have been calling for. And I will say like DEI work can be really impactful in a company um, if the person, if the person or group, the department is actually given real power. So you see, you know, companies like the Recording Academy at the Grammys building out a DEI team that really has power, that is able to change processes and systems internally in the company. Um, and so what they're doing is they're looking at hiring practices, right? Is like from the bottom up, every single level, how do you hire? Because, because, you know, if you're looking at hiring, you can actually see that like discrimination starts with the hiring pool, not who you hire and not how those people are promoted. It starts with how you get a hiring pool. And so, you know, some DEI departments are making changes on a systemic level. They're going in and they're changing the way that they do recruiting. They're changing the way that you, you know, rank um, candidates. You can't just say that someone is, you know, a good culture fit anymore. You know, you've got to be specific about that. Um, and, and in other companies, if you look at like Facebook, for example, they've created a DEI department that has no power at all. Um, they don't sit in the executive board. They can't make executive decisions for the company. Um, and really, it's like the resident black people um, who are just... Um, you know, spinning wheels, trying to make change where they can, but not given the power to really um, create systemic changes. Wow. That is, you know, because I'm always, I know like both Akeem and Carmen are probably thinking of when they've been shadow banned. <laughs> you know, we always, we always talk about like racially, I mean, you've seen this in the past two weeks about, you know, people are posting things. And for some reason, when it's like black, you do feel like, someone is not letting it be seen. Yeah. Do you, have you seen actual evidence of that Amity or? Uh, yeah. Well, so the algorithms themselves can be discriminatory. It, it differs from each platform to platform. Um, but often, you know, algorithms are only um, showing specific types of content and, and when the algorithms are written by white people, they don't realize that that can cause discrimination, right? And so if you are, um, you know, talking about justice, for example, um, the algorithms think that people get activism fatigue and they stop showing those posts to them um, after a while um, is an example, right? And I could see that come through with like the, the work that you all do as well. The other thing that the algorithms do is like they create a system where um, misinformation can spread more easily. So someone puts out, you know, a post that's clearly untrue. We saw this with Trump during the last election. Uh, clearly untrue posts uh, would go viral and the algorithms would then send them to even more people, even though uh, it, it was very obvious that they were lies. And in, oft, in, in a lot of cases, they were targeting communities of color with lies, right? And so then the, the disinformation would just spread even more within our communities. And so... It, it, those are the sort of ways that it can happen. And you guys can jump in at any time, Akeem or Carmen. I can't see you, Carmen, so I don't know when you're about to speak. But <laughs> Yeah, this, the shadow banning is wild because they'll just, especially like with Instagram, 
they're randomly blocked like black creators. And I know this because like I'm good for, I'm I'm good friend with Godfrey and they are always like randomly like just blocking his live. Like he because he goes live a lot and he talks about racial injustice. He talks about stuff like that. And then randomly out of the blue, the like block is live. I think he's I don't know if he's blocked now, but he was blocked a while back. He was in like some type of jail or something, right? They won't even tell him why. They'll just have him blocked for like a month and then randomly he'll be unblocked. And then they'll block him again, but they de- but they don't give reasons why he's blocking them. They don't say they just say you community guidelines, but they don't, they never specify. Yeah, they keep it vague. Yeah, and then and then they don't even give you like a time frame. Like it, with Facebook, they'll give you a time frame. You're blocked for two weeks or three weeks, but with Instagram, they're just like you're blocked. And then it's like, and then but I've never heard the same thing happening to white people. Like I've never heard of someone getting blocked as frequently as people like like Godfrey who gets blocked all the time. And Godfrey is very vocal about black issues, exactly. right? He does like every month he'll do a person that you should know about. Yeah. So that's why, I mean, and then also Godfrey does get, say some kind of yeah. random things that you can <laughs> argue. Arguably, like you go, someone probably did report yeah. it, but they should explain or say they why. They should say you, you're you, blocked because... This, 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 this. And then you can be make a conscious awareness. Okay, I won't say that. I won't say that. Or I'll do or I'll work around it. But they just like, oh no, you're blocked. And they don't tell you how long or they don't tell you why. They just say you're blocked. Uh, yeah, I think it goes back to the the whole algorithm being written by somebody white. It's like they're not, it's I don't, it's automatic. So there's not a person going, I'm blocking Godfrey because that's too much or anything. It's just they're like taking things out and like words and phrases and then just it's just automatically being done by a, by a computer program so it's like until you have a developer who is being conscious of that as they are making the 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 software that is sifting through everyone who's saying things then it's still going to be a problem that's still going to keep happening so like amity like you were saying there's no black leadership or in within like facebook or meta it, and I'm assuming you you all have done that work where you're looking in and you're taking a deep dive in to find who's in these positions and there's no one there, huh? Yeah, I mean, you know, Facebook Meta is a big company. They're like a couple, but, you know, one black person can't change everything. They can't? <laughs> so, we saw we still live in America. Um, and so and so, yeah, like the the goal can't be to have one representative. It just can't like that person is going to be bound by the culture that they're sitting within. The goal has to be to actually diversify. Right. And really what we for for national companies, we want to see them have a staff that and a, an executive level staff and a regular and like the rest of their staff that reflects the country. So, you know, it's like it's got to be as diverse or it's really not good enough. And so um, people need support, you know, is like. I can't tell you, like, I've, I've worked a, a lot of different places. Like, when you're the only Black person in the room, you you got to pick and choose your battles, right? If there's a couple people there, there's a community of, if there's a diverse community of color at a workspace, then you start to get an actual discourse that's safe for people to say what yeah, they Yeah, I think a lot of times company confu- companies confuse diversity with tokenism. When they think diversity, they think, oh, we just need like one or two. Which is actually tokenism, but they don't they don't see that. People don't understand what that is. But like it happens all the time. It happens in comedy where they're just like, oh, okay, we need a black person on this lineup. 
throw a black person on. Okay, we need a woman. Throw one. Oh, we need a gay person. Here's a gay person. But they won't put more than one. They won't put numerous because in their head, like if it's a bunch of black people, like oh no, this is a black show now, or this is a gay show now, or this is a gay. So they they don't want to do that, so they just put one or two. And in their head, they're like, oh no, we're not, we couldn't be racist. L- look at we we got Keisha. We can't be racist if we got Keisha. We've got the one black exactly. gay woman, <laughs> so we fit all yeah. the boxes. It's and it's what's exactly. worse is on, on a company you don't even get to see the lineup either. So it's just what and it's it's even worse I think in a company setting because then you're resting. It's all of everything that black people need on this one person for this entire company. So they're representative. Of, so it's like it's not even just having um, I, I think diverse, but it's diversity of thought because then it's like okay, well, ever the, the entire culture shouldn't be on my on my shoulders for the entire company you know as far as what we need and everything because it's just too it's also just too much to ask for a person so it's like the more diverse that you have within the company it's it's the same thing like the more diverse people you have booking these shows or booking these tv shows or and stuff like that where it's not just oh it's just any person it's like no it's like oh because that was the whole thing that that was like uh, took it and marina you experienced this was it was like oh not all black women are the same look at that Oh, there's like, there's a diversity of thought. There's different kinds, you know, like it's just like, and it took people for, I I mean, definitely all of my comedy career of 15 years, which it was like, oh, oh, okay. Oh, so, so they're like us. Like it was just like an uh, obnoxious epiphany that people had to have in order to be like, oh, more thought needs to be put into this where it's not paint by numbers, so to speak. Now, Carmen, they can't see you, but you are... Latina. Yes. But I'm, I'm white passing, though. I feel like everybody should know that. I'm white passing, for sure. Don't accept that. Come on now. <laughs> I accept my privilege and I use it whenever I can uh, to... What, which, which Latin? Which one? Cuban. Cuban. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I, I, I was about to say, which brand? Um, <laughs> the Cuban brand. Yes, Cuban. And from Miami, right? From Orlando, but yeah. Oh, Orlando, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And lived in mm-hmm. Chicago. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. I thought you were from Chicago for a long time. Everybody thinks I'm from their scene because I lived on the road for six years. So I I was in everyone else's scene all the time. People think I'm from Minneapolis. People think I'm from the Bay Area. People think I'm from Chicago all the time. People think I'm from Florida. People think I'm from New York when I've, I've only ever spent a week there at a time. Yes, and I remember uh, each people time. Think, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I do want to ask you, um, Amity, about Pharrell Williams was talking about the lack of black leadership and ownership in the music industry. During an interview with Bloomberg TV, Grammy Award winning producer Pharrell Williams calls out the music industry for its lack of diversity at the top. He mentions that there's not enough black leadership. There's not enough leadership from people of color, but there's also not enough ownership. There just isn't. As much as the music industry has given me, when you really love something or love someone, you can be honest about the things that could be better. I got to say that the ownership with people of color is just not been the same. And that's something we're working on. In an effort for change, Pharrell launched his Black Ambition nonprofit initiative to strengthen the pipeline of talented artists and close the opportunity and wealth gaps resulting from limited access to capital and resources. He continually praises those who are doing the work towards the advancement of Black and Latinos in the music industry as well. 
He says, we don't have enough market share. You know, it's like I've been into stocks lately. So it's interesting that I'm kind of late to this party of knowing about investment. So what are you seeing, Amity, as far as that? Is that where you... Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you look at MTV or you watch the award shows, you'd think that everyone in music was black or you'd think that, you know, most people were like black or Latina. Um, And yeah, behind the scenes, that's just not the case at all. Um, You know, I I think Pharrell is doing a great job of like amplifying an issue, right? As like, especially if you look at the executive like level staff at these companies, at the studios, they are mostly white men um, to be straight up. They're mostly white men. Um, and those are the people making the most money. Um, they're also the people making the highest, uh, decisions for the companies, um, deciding who, you know, gets to be famous and who doesn't. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, he's, Pharrell's right. Um, we need to diversify, uh, the executive team, but also at really every level. Again, like every level has a dis- has decision-making power. Um, and this is something at Color of Change that we're really big on is like, you don't have to be, you know, the CEO of a company to be making changes. Um, you, you just have to like sort of recognize where you have the power to make change. And so, and so, yeah, the, the, it, we are seeing um, the music industry really, take diversity a little more seriously, but that doesn't mean that they are doing well yet. Um, and so, um, yeah, exactly. Carmen, you're laughing. It's like, they're not doing well yet. But I don't think, I don't believe there's a lot of black musicians that like own their masters. I don't think there's a lot. And if you think about it, like all these crazy famous black people, it's like that make all these music, but yeah, but they're signed to a label and usually the, the, the head honcho of that label it's some old white dude who doesn't even know the, the lyrics of the songs, but they're like, we're still making billions of dollars off of the song. We don't know any of the words to it, but they're still making all this money. Like you got, like we all know how hard Prince had to fight to get his mat. And he's Prince. Like he's one of the goats of music. And he had to go through all this just to get his masters back. And not everyone has the type of power or fame that Prince had. Like a lot, most people don't. And they don't have their masters and they're making all this music and they're making they're making in their head. They're making a lot of money, but that's they're making a lot of money compared because they're all they all come from like a poor perspective. Not all of them, but a lot of people when you're broke and someone gives you signs, you a deal for 10 million dollars in your head. You're like, yo, I just made 10 million dollars. This is amazing. But it's like, yeah, but how much are they making? off the they, they gave you 10 million, but you might have made 90 million. And they're just like, all right, cool. You made our company $80 million and we just going to give you a little 10. And to you, 10 million is life-changing, but in actuality, you deserve to have more than that. But they're just like, we'll give him 10 because he doesn't know any better. Yeah, you're, ta- you're talking about the bigger problem of education of wealth, right? Like we as a Black community specifically, we need to educate each other much better. Is there something, Amity, that they do over there at Color of Change just to help people to be more informed about like investments and in- well, so we're not we're not leading sort of like uh, financial planning for people. We're we're doing it more at a corporate level of like t- w- one of the things that we've pushed is for companies to be more transparent about their reporting. So like you know they're keeping numbers like they know how much money 
is going where, right? And so what we've been doing is really sort of drilling down on those numbers. Like, okay, how much how much money that's being made by these Black performers and, and talent is actually going back to that talent and trying to balance that out on that high level, right? Is like, if it's 3%, what if you made it 5%? this year what if you made it seven percent the year after right and so we're doing it on a on a corporate level but i think um there are lots of people in at the studios that are starting to advocate for like the contracts to actually just include a financial planner right if you're gonna make 50 million off of someone you can afford to hire a financial planner as part of their contract. Um, we've seen this also, like some of the studios have started um, adding mental health support, like a mental health counselor for the for their artists. Like, I think those are really important to just be built in, to just have it be normal. So someone doesn't have to ask for it or know that they should ask for that level of support, that it's just available to them um, as they're getting started. The only way that a lot of like black artists were able to do that is through, I mean, Nips, I, I don't, every Nipsey Hustle album had a blueprint for how you should be doing this and how you shouldn't be letting anybody own anything that's yours. And I mean, like, even as far back as like Dr. Dre used to talk about that stuff too. Like there have been, there have been artists that have been trying to be like, Hey, don't, don't do it, do it this way. Like, to, like trying to come, like try to convey that message the only way that, that they can through the art itself. Um, and then I think that like, there's a lot of, cause, uh, cause Akeem's talking about this, like on a personal level, I'd like, you know, not on a corporate level where you're trying to combat it systemically, but like, as far as uh, on the, on the, uh, individual. And then there's also people like the wall street trapper who teach people. It's like how to invest money the way, uh, successful people, rich people are already doing it, you know, and how to be able to like, where if you're, if, if it's, if you have to make money illegally, if that's something that you have to do, how to, how, in order to turn that into legal money and how to make that into like, um, you know, it, it, into investments, into a portfolio and stuff like that. Like, I think all of those, all of those, uh, resources are incredible. And I think more and more people are, are fucking with them in general, you know? And I think that that's, what's like, that's a, that's the thing that's making me feel good is like more and more people are learning how to, okay, I made this, this, this little bit of money. What can I actually do with it? I'm not going to spend it because that's what they always tell me to do with it is spend it. Fuck that. I'm going to, I'm going to put it in a portfolio and invest it in my future. Like, um, these, <laughs> I hang out with these, these nerds. Cause I, I just stream on Twitch and stuff and they do this. It's almost like a chat roulette thing. And there was this dude who was, um, that I met randomly is going to school in Florida who is, who was going to school for like a double major, double minor had like started, um, had start, he would start, started selling drugs cause he had to, cause he couldn't get a, a job that paid decently. And he just took that money and he started putting it in the stock market and then was able to pay for his own college because they wouldn't give him a, a scholarship. Like, it was just like, like this, 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 this is the movie I want to see. This is the movie I want to see, you know, where it's just like, this dude is doing it and he's doing it smart and he's doing it in a way that's like, not like, um, this is the same struggle story that Hollywood loves to regurgitate and put out all the time it was just genuinely inspiring you know and um and like so I, I I'm seeing more and more of that and that's making me feel good but I do wish yeah like more people in general would just know about that I mean like education is a thing that is, it, I, I've always just been like if people know something is an option and they they can learn people can very easily learn yeah it's so it's so overwhelming all of it isn't it I mean like 
There was just an article about Harvard. I forgot to put this in. I wanted to put it in about like the hard truth about Harvard and how they made money, profited off of slavery. Harvard really University released a 134-page report Tuesday that begins to explain as uh, the nation's oldest, richest, and most prestigious institution of higher learning benefited from slavery. Slavery powerfully shaped Harvard, which is interesting because whenever we're there, it's like a it's we're treated as if it's a handout, you know, the balls, the balls on that institution, the labor, the labor of enslaved people enriched donors to the university, helping Harvard expand its infrastructure grow its faculty and student body and build its reputation. And prominent Harvard leaders and professors defended slavery, justified segregation, and promoted racial hierarchy and discrimination. Now, this isn't actually shocking to me in a sense, because I'm like, well, I mean, isn't this all of America? Yeah, every uh, successful institution, yeah. Well, I would say don't get overwhelmed. Like, there is a lot of adversity. I mean, there's a lot, right? Like, I think, I think, we can look at the state of our, our world and the state of our institutions and companies that we rely on and say like, this gets overwhelming. And, and, but one of the things that like, I want to say is just like, there's a lot to change, which just means that we can change a lot in our lifetimes. Like if you look, if you talk to your grandparents, right, our grandparents generation, they'll tell you how much has changed in their life. Right. To the, to the point where like there is a lot that used to happen that we don't have to deal with anymore. And I think that shows just the power that like so many people who care can have in a, in a fairly short amount of time, right? Is like, if we're talking about Harvard and them, you know, being the institution that they are because of slave labor, I think we can start to look at places where reparations are actually, be, are actually being won. Um, so you, you look at Bruce's Beach, um, which is in, in California, which just offered reparations to the people who who own the black people who own that beach before white people took it away from them. Right. It's like I think, um, Carmen, you made a really great point of like there are examples of people winning and doing things right all over the place. Now, those examples are not the norm yet, but the fact that we have successful examples gives us one something to replicate you don't have to start from scratch and two it also it also says that it can be done right these these solutions are not impossible someone is doing it successfully and making money and being you know and being honored for that work and so and so i think it's like we we should copy the things that work um, we should work with the people who know how to do that. But also, if you're in you're in your own life and you see that something is wrong, you can start to say to yourself, well, how do I change this, right? What is I, What I challenge folks to think about is like, what is the system that is wrong? Not just like the emotional piece of it, of like something doesn't feel right. It's like, how do we get here? And then to look at yourself and the people around you and say like, okay, who has power over that system? Is it a group of you and your friends that can like, you know, speak up and protest or is it a group of folks on Twitch, right? We just did a campaign with Twitch that won um, some changes from the company. Like, is it a group of folks online that you need to just gather? Maybe it's you, right? It, the person that can make the change might be you. Like, you're hiring people and actually you're doing it a little wrong. Maybe you should be the one to make that change. And so I just, there's a lot of wrong in our world, but that doesn't mean that we can't fix it. 
the like they said that the Oscars really needs to step up. Like it's like <laughs> so oh my God. It's yeah, so it's obvious. so like I find that like with something like Netflix, right? This is an example. Uh, a lot of people would ask, oh, Marina, do you have a special on Netflix? If you don't have a special on Netflix, then for some reason, your value as a comedian is not there. This is just the narrative. It's not necessarily true anymore because their stock just dropped. But I also <laughs> feel like Netflix oftentimes did this where they said, well, we've given you Tiffany Haddish or we have this show here or we have this person in Africa that's of color. But yet we all know, comedians know, there's a fair amount of Black comedians unless they are put on by someone who's actually made it. And even that person had to get to a certain level to even be put on. They're not getting the same pay. It's, it's just, where does color of change look into the entertainment industry as far as like acting and, and these, these streaming platforms? I'm just curious about this. Yeah, we are all up in the mix in, in uh, TV and film the same way we are in music. We have a roadmap to racial justice change, and many of the companies are signed on doing that accountability work I was talking about with us. Now, Netflix is not one of those companies. Um, And um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're supposed to be meeting with them, so we'll see. But But I think with Netflix, something that looks, again, like something that looks like a standard practice has created, it's created a racial dynamic within the company that's not acceptable. And so what I mean by that is, you know, Netflix just did all of this, they, they just downsized, so they fired a bunch of people. Now, usually when you see downsizing, a company will downsize the people with the least tenure at the company. But Netflix also just did a whole diversity hiring sprint, which means that all of those new people who don't have tenure at the company are Black and Latino for the most part. Those are, those are the two groups most impacted in this, um, in this past week. And so by just implementing something that's quote unquote normal, that's the standard, they created an unfair practice within the company, a, a racist practice within the company. And so this is also why you have to, you can't just do like a race neutral program. Like, that those they don't work. You have to think about people's races in relation to every single system that is within a company, because otherwise you can recreate the the exact dynamics that you're looking to change. Very interesting, because I, I I don't know. I mean, both Akeem and Carmen, I don't know what what relationship you've had with the industry and getting on or if you feel any, any of that frustration. Do you? Um, I personally feel infuriated about it because I know those they I know those certain things like can't get or I only get because like for instance I was just talking to another another comic we auditioned for JFL and I'm a, I'm a gay black dude but an, me and another gay black dude had this conversation it was like oh well they're only going to pick one of us like they're not because they're not they don't they don't need two gay black people even although our stand-ups our stand-ups aren't even remotely similar we have none of the same subject matter we don't talk about the same things we don't have the same personality on stage but in their mind they're like oh no we we got a gay black dude already why, why, why on earth would we need But he's not a hoe like you are. <laughs> That's the point. He isn't. He's in a relationship and he's living his dream. <laughs> but that's the thing. So they, so it's just, so I, I feel like that all the time. And, but what's wild about it is I tell this to people, to white people normally, and they, because I, I hear this all the time. It makes me infuriated, but I hear this all the time. They're like, oh, Akeem, you're so lucky you're gay and black 
the industry is looking for you right now. Like, you're so lucky. I'm like, oh, cool. Uh, tell me one gay black comic who's making six figures. And then they're like, oh. I'm like, oh, yeah, none of them. Tell me a gay black comic who's ho- who, who's a late night host. Tell me a gay black comic who has a sitcom. Tell me tell me a gay black comic besides Gerard that has a special. And then they're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, nah. So they're not looking for us. <laughs> And Gerard had to like slow play it anyways, too. It wasn't even like he could be out and open and so they're not looking for us, but people think that. They think that like if you're a double minority, especially if like even like if you're a black woman, you're gay, like if you're a double minority, they think, oh yeah, the it's easier for you guys now. And it's like, nah, y'all are still winning. <laughs> y'all, y'all, it's not even close, really. It's just now it's almost it's it's kind of getting to like where it might be fair. And like now, now straight white people actually have to be funny. And now, and in their head, they're like, "Well, this is infuriating." What do you mean we have to be funny? It was like you should have had to be funny the whole time. <laughs> but now it's like now you're not just getting it. Now it's like, oh, you have to actually earn it. But we've had to earn it the entire time. But y'all just handed it. But in their mind, they're like, "Well, now that we have to earn it, this doesn't seem fair at all." Yeah, I sit on the on the board of a. Um of a comedy incubation lab for Hollywood called Yes and Laughter Lab. And that is is the reason that this lab exists is like what we do is we take the people who are similar. We take the, the five gay black comedians and we put them together for a showcase for Hollywood to see like there's a there's a diversity here and each of these men are funny. Or we do it, you know, and we do we do the same thing of like we'll have, you know, five Native American comedians do a, you know, come on stage and do do their pieces. And the piece is not to compare them. The piece is to prove to Hollywood that like you can have more than one for one, um, but also that, um, you know, we're setting them up with deals and like connections to the industry. And folks are sort of sort of starting to see like, oh, we could do two of these like it is. Like, it's okay for me to talk to both people at once. And it's just been really interesting to sort of push that boundary a little bit um, uh, with the decision makers in Hollywood who actually sign the deals um, to talk to us behind the scenes about why they need to be in this space. But then to, like, actually see the show and see that people are actually funny and different in in the way that they approach their comedy. Yeah, it's that diversity of thought that I was talking about where it's just like, it's not, it's not, not all gay black men are hoes like Akeem art. Like not all of them. <laughs> He's just really good at it, you know? And, um, and being able to showcase and that, I think that, and I think what is what Amity was talking about earlier also applies to what Akeem's talking about now, which is like, Oh, there's this like visual of like, Oh, look how diverse it is on the entry level on getting JFL, you know, like, Oh, look how diverse they are. Look at how the, how diverse these showcases are. But then all the people that are getting paid like hella good money, it's the same people, <laughs> you know, it's not Netflix isn't looking for a new person. They're just going to go, Oh, well, we could just, we could just give Chappelle more money. You know, there's that option. Um, and it's like, so they just keep going back to these same like, um, routine things that, 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 that it seems like they're telling themselves that they're doing, uh, to be progressive, but they're not really, you know? Yeah. I think that's why data is so important so that they can't just give us one anecdote and say, look at Dave Chappelle. We've got this black guy. Actually, Chris Rock is a really good example of this. People will use Chris Rock and say that he's black and he's also native and he's, you know, it's like they'll list off all these things with him. And and 
so the data is important, so they can't get away with just giving us an ad- anecdote. We want to see how many people do you have at each pay scale under each r- gender, race, you know, orientation. And what we see, right, is like once we look at data, is that it's totally unfair. It's like there's th- exactly what you're talking about. That conversation about Monique, I defended it for a long time. I felt so like she was thrown under the bus when she, it was such a pivotal moment to find out how they were paying us less. When 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 Monique did that and then Wanda came out and was like, oh, this is how much they tried to pay me. I'm like, are you serious? Wanda, Wanda Sykes? I mean, Wanda Sykes and Monique were like, what more do you have to do? They've been, they've been they're wildly successful. They're wildly talented. They're one of the top teal comics, male, female, black, white, whatever. It's Wanda Sykes and Monique. And you're telling me that you, that you offered them that low. I was, I was, yeah, I was, and I was, it was surprised. infuriating because I, I was listening to comedians discuss her attitude and I was like, that has nothing to do with business here. You, you know, what her, at, and it is so like typical to say a black woman has an attitude. Even if she does, she has a right to demand what she wants. If you don't like that, I mean, it's, it, it was just like, this is not the argument too. It's about why is this person being paid far less? Let's really look at that. And then people were like, well, she hasn't been relevant for a while. I mean, they they threw her under the bus in so many ways that I'm like, this is such a much bigger problem about how they aren't putting value to our work. And if we look across the board, and that's why it was so important when Wanda came out, because you cannot argue you know, Wanda Sykes is that person and why were they devaluing her? And so now with the transparency, like you were talking about, Amity, when we see like across the board what Netflix is doing and what their practices are and what Wall Street just realized was like, oh, this this is a lie. This is not what they say they are. I, I think what people need to do and us as comics as we need to do is like they always make it taboo to talk about money. And by they, I mean white people. They always say, don't talk about how much you get paid. But that's them keeping us quiet so we don't know we're being underpaid. If no one's talking about how much money they're making, everyone's just like you go into a blind. Like like if you got a half hour, like, hey, Comedy Central gave me a half hour. You should talk to people like, what did they pay you for your half hour? If you talk to a white dude, like, yo, what did they pay you for your half hour? And then you'll find out, oh, they got 50K for their half hour, but they're offering me 10. And then you got to realize, like, why the fuck are they offering me 10 and they're offering him 50? Like, but that's the thing. They have us all quiet. They have us all not talking about money. They make it so taboo. Like, oh, don't talk about money. It's tacky. And it's like, it's not tacky because you say not to talk about money so y'all can pay us less without us knowing that we're getting paid less. I mean, Akeem and I, like we, we, like we used to, I mean, coming up, that was the whole thing is we would always talk about, I would always ask everybody, even though it was uncouth, I didn't give a shit. What are you getting paid for this? Because I knew they would, I knew like my, I had a friend, our a mutual friend, Kendra, we used to do the same run, but I used to ask everybody what they were getting paid. So I knew what to ask for. And like, and there's, there's women like Maria Bamford, who was like completely transparent with everything that she would get paid. And then it was like, oh my God, I didn't even know you could ask for that much money for what we do like holy shit then you see you see you see the other side of it too where it's just like um the more transparency we have the more i mean that that's empowering to know like how much money is out there being paid and like and then we could find out because i used to ask everybody i was like would you get paid for that okay and then some people would make some people uncomfortable but i don't give a fuck 
because at the end of the day, I don't, I'm not doing this for you to feel comfortable. I'm doing this so I can be, I have a shot at being successful as well, you know? And, uh, and without those conversations and we're not having that, like the confidence, I guess, to do that, to ask about it, then we never know Then we stay underpaid forever, you know? And it took, it took Monique all of the confidence in the world because she knew she was going to get blowback. There's no, no doubt about it that she knew she wasn't going to get shit for it. And she still did it anyways. And that's the shit that's badass to me, you know? Um, is just like, yeah, give me all the hate you want. I don't give a fuck, but give me more money then. I think Amity said something very important too um, about how you said it's really up to us, right? Like there was a union years ago for the comedians so that we could get paid more at these spots in New York City. Like LA never did that. So they're, they're still getting, I think, mail checks for like 10 bucks. bucks. $20 for a Hollywood improv spot. Yeah, but in New York City, you can make a living at these clubs because of the union and because someone said it's about me and having a voice on the matter. So, yeah, well, everyone is unionizing nowadays. So, you know, those folks in L.A. want want to do it. Now's the time. I think you're right. We have to share information. We have to ask for that information and not be afraid of that. But also, if you are a man or a white woman or white man, you know, it's like if you are someone who is in privilege um, and who statistically can expect to be offered more money. I think there is also an onus that we should set on them to share the information with their colleagues, right? Of like to not tiptoe and to say like, hey, here's how much I'm getting paid. Want you to know this because they're because most likely they're going to offer you less. I think that the onus on changing the system can't just be on black folks, right? Is like it has to be shared. So like if you are listening to this and you're someone that like put up a Black Lives Matter post on social media, like it's on you to also have to also start those conversations to make sure that the person next to you isn't getting taken advantage of. I think that also happens. It happens. That's also necessary in, in the in the corporate world as well, because uh, my friend uh, Kisaida is she works for a nonprofit and she's Afro Latino and she's like she's moved up in, through the ranks and dealing with a bunch of bullshit in order to get to that position. Just so then she can be like she can be in like leverage her position in order to be able to help other people be able to make more money that way as well. And it's like those are the I think those kind of stories that also should be celebrated in the sense that like there's somebody that. Um, who originally was to- she was a token person at her company and then ended up g- like getting more and more people hired, more and more a, a diversity uh, class of people hired. And um, and through that, more and more people got paid better, you know, and it took somebody coming in from within the inside and, and being able to share with everybody. OK, well, I'm getting I'm getting paid this and finding out what her, um, you know, her co-workers that were white or more, more privileged that were what they were getting paid in order for her to be able to do that. So it took people being able to be like, be willing to be transparent and then being willing to be like, be, again, being willing, confident enough to be like, okay, well, we, we deserve this money too. Right. So, I mean, back to the Grammys. Um, I just want to say that they did this year. I know we don't want to like, just go, Hey, they did it this year, but This year's Grammys telecast showcased something industry watchers and fans have been waiting for, inclusion. The 64th annual awards in Las Vegas, which aired a while ago, honored a diverse array of performers from Song and Record of the Year winners, Silk Sonic to Best New Artist Olivia Rodrigo to Album of the Year winner, John Baptiste, who we've had Autumn 
row on who also received an award. She's been on this podcast several times, specifically talking about the money that writers, she's a writer, she's a songwriter. So she is fighting for songwriters to get paid. And that, you know, across the board, white and black, they don't get, they get nothing. Which is wild. I didn't even, I didn't know that because I'm not in the industry, but that is crazy. Yeah, I mean, like, that it's the start of everything, right? It's like, you're not going to get the music without them. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, so what we did at the, at the Grammys this year is we implemented something called an inclusion rider, which is, is a legal document that requires diversity at all levels. It's sort of what we've been talking about this whole time is like, you can't just have an, a black executive, you can't have the one, you know, black you know, state like lighting crew person, like it actually has to be diverse at all levels in order to to get the sort of uh, diversity benefits that really do come when when you have diverse staff. And so, so yeah, what we did is we we did an inclusion writer with the Grammys, um, and at every single stage of of that production, they're hiring diverse staff, fully diverse, not only black but black Latino, diverse across race, across gender identification across the board. And and so it's just natural, right, that that the writers are seeing that and saying like, "Hey, what about us in the studio processes?" And I think that's really that's that it's part of why a good example is so powerful. So even if you're doing something small, giving that good example means that it's sort of the idea that things should be fair starts to spread. Um, and so it's been really uh, great to see, you know, the writers start to speak out and it's certainly, it's, we're not working on it yet, but certainly something that we're interested in. And like, obviously, like Akeem was saying, is like, it's crazy. Like, there's no reason that they should be paid so little. And I know that these award shows, now I'm so glad because they're, these are basically TV shows for entertainment. Like we look at them as like, oh my God, it's the of Grammys, but it's also a well-produced TV show like for that night. So like um, these other award shows, and I know in fact, one of them, I can't really say here. I've, I've said this before that as we talk about these things, it's only 1% of how horrible it actually is because I can't say honestly everything that is going on, but it's abhorrent. But there is an award show that I know specifically was not looking for anyone black to host it. I know it. And the person who is the president of that programming doesn't know that they're racist. They don't think that they are. They don't. They, but what they're looking for always is a blonde white girl. So how do you have you outside of the Grammys? Where else do you, like you said, you're going to hopefully go to Netflix? Are there any other, like the Oscars, let's say for next year? Have you implemented that or tried to? Yeah, absolutely. So we're already talking to most of the big TV award shows. Uh, we got the Golden Globes canceled last Whoa, year. Um, that was you? It was just a part. Yeah, that was Color of Change. Wow. Yeah. We, you know, we, le- we were looking at the Golden Globes. And we saw one that they weren't being transparent, but two, we found out that they had no black voters in their membership, which means that there were no black people in the whole world that they thought were acceptable to be voting on those films. Um, and and I know it's crazy, right, Carmen? So we decided that it wasn't that wasn't something you could fix in like the three months that we had before the awards. So we got uh, NBC to cancel the show. And so to your point, Marina is like, when things are too bad, when things are really just like that abhorrent, sometimes you just have to 
like you just got to cancel the thing. And I know they're working. I just met with them last week. I know they're working really hard to get the show back on the air. Um, And part of that work is like working with organizations like Color of Change to actually make the changes so that the show can be acceptable. Like you can't, we're not going to let them back on air unless they fix all the problems that we canceled them for, you know, talking to the Oscars as well. You know, Country Music Awards is a great <laughs> bad example as well. Folks were, t- were, were starting to talk to, but really looking for the ways we sort of inventory the problems at the award shows and then try and find like the best f- systemic solution for the problems that they have. So with the Golden Globes, it's like y'all got to hire, you got to hire black voters like they got to hire black journalists it's like baseline. Right. That's what people tend to forget is like you have black people. We also have to be in charge of booking. We have to be in charge of like it, we have because if, if if the people in charge of booking talent or the people in charge of finding talent are all old white men in their 50s, they're obviously going to relate more to young, to white people than they would to, to black people. And that's what's, and that's what's fucking up booking like for JFL and full festivals. Like even on a small scale example, I remember a few years back, um, the, like maybe four or five years back, laughing skull festival was a festival in Atlanta had no black women on the festival. And I'm telling, I'm like in Atlanta. So you're telling me in the, in, in Atlanta, which is the blackest city in America, you couldn't find any, you didn't think there were any funny black women in it, in the whole, in Atlanta. And then the excuse was, oh, well, we didn't get a lot of people. They, they first said a lot of black women didn't submit. And then they got caught out. It was like, oh no, those 20 black people who submitted. And then they're like 20 black women. And then they doubled down like, oh, well, they didn't meet our criteria. It's like, so who's watching these videos to come, come to find out? It's all white dudes. I'm like, oh, well, that's probably your problem. That you have all white dude, you have all white dudes running a festival in Atlanta. Like that's not weird. Yeah, the, and comedy is the lowest on the totem pole. Like we get the worst of the worst as far as inclusion, because the worst of the worst is actually running the shows. Oh yeah, <laughs> that is one hundred percent true. I mean, you know, comedy was really born out of let's be honest, like strip clubs, mafia run Irish mob, you know, and then you know somebody, they put up a funny guy and now, but now it's more lucrative. Right. So it, it, yeah, it, we, I think it's all about shining a light on where there's lack of inclusion and the transparency, but shining a light. It's, it's actually, like you said, Amity, it's our responsibility to, and, and that's what was great about what happened with that festival was like, Everyone got on top of that. And we have Victor Vernado on the show who wrote this long post about just do the right thing. Like we know you, you're saying that you try, but how about you just do the right thing? I mean, and that's all these festivals, these comedy festivals that happen, you will always see they are not run by us. Oh, per, a perfect example. Jeff Singer just qu- quit. He got fired. But he just, just for JFL, he booked JFL for years. And it turned out, and then he got, he got, he quit because they, a bunch of, con- it happened at the cellar, actually. A bunch of, he was saying the N-word a bunch. And people called him out on it. And then, <laughs> funnily enough, Moran posted about it. Uh, Moran's a comic at the cellar. He, like, made a tweet about, like, some experience. He's a gay, gay Iranian man. He made a tweet about it, and the tweet went viral, and then everyone started talking about all the wild shit Jeff, like, Jeff has been saying to people. Like, he told Moran, he, when he saw Moran audition for Jeff, he's like, oh, I've seen gay before. 
That's what he that that was his. That's what he told him. So in his mind, he's like, I already know, you're gay. I already have a gay. That's basically that's literally what he said. And and but this is the this is the dude in charge of JFL, which is the biggest comedy festival in the world. Like this is the dude in charge of booking, and he was in charge for years. And then finally, it, he came out that he was racist because he was saying the N word a bunch. And then he didn't even get fired. He just quit because he knew they were probably eventually going to fire him. But it's like, dude, you've been the gatekeeper of the biggest festival in history for 20 years. And you're this guy who's racist and homophobic and wildly sexist. But there's also the result of that. There's like a fatigue that comes because with the with specifically with the um, the laughing skull thing. I remember talking to a lot of comedians and they were just like, yeah, I got I just got tired of submitting. I'm only going to get told no so many times because they're like, well, not a lot of black women submitted. And it's just like, yeah, well, I've been submitting for five years and you've never let me in. So I'm not going to keep doing it. Like, if you don't fuck with me, I'm not going to do it anymore. I mean, people get tired of getting told no and they're not good enough when they are, you know, when, when they when they are, <laughs> when they are, because the same five, you know, white dudes are, are watching all the videos. If they remember her from last year and they're like, ah, oh, no, she, she didn't, you know, whatever the case is, or even if they, if she doesn't strike them because they have a different point. I don't know what, the, what the fuck their issue is, but I'm just saying like, they're not the, I think the problem is, is a lot of time is, especially with people booking things is they're booking things that they personally enjoy and they're not booking for everyone. You know, um, and I do like when because I talk to club owners and stuff like that about this stuff all the time. Like, I never think that I always I've always been a like a, personal conversations is always where I feel like I'm 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 most successful in making any kind of change. So then I I talk to these people about this shit, and it's like, well, are you booking for you? did you open a comedy club so that you could just see the comedians that you want? Or do you want to be a successful comedy club wherein that there are people that are not like you that want to watch this, that want to watch other comedians, other forms of comedy, you know, like if you were a comedian that only liked, um, you know, like quirky one-liners, like a Mitch Hedberg or a Stephen Wright type of person, if you only booked that, guess who's only going to come to that comedy club? People that only like that kind of comedy. It, but you have to have it. It's again, it's, it's, it's all about the diversity of, of, of human beings and diversity of thought. And like the more then the more that's you're reaching a bigger audience, it's just better business. Like it's just better business. Accountability amongst ourselves, I think is also important. Like I see a lot of us in positions and not doing what they could do for others coming up, young people, young celebrities coming up, young comedians coming up. I mean, some seem to imitate the model of white men when they get into positions of power. Do you see that, Amity? Have you, Is there anything in Color of Change where you're addressing like, you know, well, you know, I kind of think we should highlight some some Black individuals who aren't reaching back and pulling others up. Or do you stay away from that and say, eh, it's hard? <laughs> I know. Well, I, I think I agree with you. There are a lot, I have a lot of examples. I will not name them. Um, so we're not gonna call we're not gonna call a black person out just for not doing enough. Like if they're causing harm, then yes, absolutely. Um, like that's a problem. I think there is a piece though where again, like to our conversation about why it's important to have more than one, like you can always make that argument of like, one is not enough. 
that one person does not represent all black people, difference of experience, right? And so, and so, no, we're not gonna we're not gonna pull the like Clarence Thomases of the world out of their <laughs> oh positions. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 there's a piece where like it's beneficial to have that other to have more diversity, right? Like just because Clarence Thomas is there doesn't mean that you don't need other people of color on the Supreme Court. It goes for every level of our society. Yeah. There's just not enough, as Fer- as Pharrell was saying. Now, um, I thought I put this article in about needing more plus size black actors, says Broadway and West Instar, as she takes on the coveted role of Addo Annie in the revival of Oklahoma at London's Young Vic Theater. Wallace is on a singular mission to call out the lack of plus sized black actors. This was in the Guardian on stage and to inspire young girls just like her. Marisha Williams. Uh, it's actually M- Williams. And as someone who rarely saw people that looked like her on stage, she hopes to inspire women who may feel like their body isn't good enough, also known as thin and white enough to be a performer. She mentions how when we walk outside, we don't see all the same race, gender, or body type. So why does our theater and our art not reflect that? So do you... Do you work with uh, Broadway as far as inclusion? Yeah, so we're actually just in the process of creating an inclusion writer for Broadway. I think a lot of times for Broadway, this also happens in film. People think about racial justice or like diversity and they only look at their hiring. But you have to look at content as well. Like the content has to be diverse. The content has to be racially just as well. So if you're in the music industry, that means the music that you're creating. If you're in theater, it means the show, right? If if you're in TV and film, it means the, the TV shows and the films you're making need to be thinking about this diversity and equity as well. And part of it is that we need more stories that are about Black women, period, right? Is like if there are more stories about, about Black women or that have Black women characters, there will be more space for these actors, right, to actually get roles. But also, you know, I I think like, especially in theater, they got to confront the idea that all the roles are white. Like, I think Annie is a great example. When they did the film adaptation a few years ago, that Black Annie, it was like, oh, that's right. Like, you can, you can switch it up. And it takes some work, right? It's like, you can't just make a white character black. Like you got to think through their whole story arc and see if there are places that look racist if the if the person is black cuz that happens so often. I can't tell you. But we just need more content that has space for these roles and honestly people are tired of seeing of like watching the same old stories anyhow. Like give us new stuff to watch. Like there's such a diversity of stories that are just not being told because people are not being given the chance to enough to produce, of Shakespeare. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking actually, but yes, you know, years ago, and this is an embarrassing story to tell, but now that I'm listening to you, Amity, I'm kind of it's putting it into perspective, and I know Huckleberry Finn is a very controversial subject in a book. But when I was a kid, I chose to play Huckleberry. And you know what? Without even realizing, now that I'm looking back on it, I understand kind of why I did it. Because I picked out the themes of friendship. I wasn't thinking of it in a racial term as a kid. 
even though someone would argue, why not? How could you? What are you crazy? But when you when I did that in front of my teachers, the, it opened their eyes because they were like, oh my God. Because for me, it was only about how do you defend someone that's your friend through all of the, um, the there was the racism that was going on. But that's what I connected to just through a child's eyes. That's all I connected to. Now, I may have been somewhat naive in picking to play, you know, Huckleberry Finn. But when I look back at it, could you do in this day and age with such a controversial story on a, a black Huckleberry Finn? I mean, I think you certainly could. I don't think we're, we're not going to have a whole bunch of people running around <laughs> saying the N-word with a black man on right. stage. But I think you could do it if you address the places where the script is inappropriate with a black right. character. Right. And, and to your point, there are other themes in this in this book that could be beautiful to show on screen without that race dynamic, like, like as front and center. Although, you know, Huckleberry Finn is legal to teach in like 10 states in the country now because of those critical race theory laws. So I don't even know if you would be able to, <laughs> to put it up, but I think there are ways to do it. Maybe that's an extreme example. It's easier with like, you know, a little, a little calmer examples, Marina, but no, but I think it's a, I think it's an interesting one when you, when you talk, cause Oklahoma, like this young um, Marisha Williams is playing is about, you, you think about like farming and she said she grew up on a pig farm. You know, we talk about black farmers, how you can update Oklahoma to represent black farmers. It's just amazing. It's an amazing theme and that I would love to see. But anyway, go go ahead. I was going to ask, and this this seems like it's in the vein, because you mentioned critical race theory. How is there, how could we, because I don't know what states don't teach it or what states, I don't fully, I know what it is. I know Florida probably doesn't teach it because they're trash and like, like Texas, I assume. But like, here's the thing that's wild about it that I don't understand. Like they never, Florida never, I grew up in Florida they never really taught black history anyway. Like they, what they told black history was like, yo, y'all were slaves. Abraham Lincoln freed y'all. Everything was good. Like that's literally the breakdown that they took. They, they, they skipped everything else. And like, I started learning about like actual, like things that happened in slavery from like movies and TikTok and TV. Like I had no idea. I had no idea about, I bet I didn't know about redlining. I had no idea that there was, um, that there was like a book that that black people had to like that read to like know what sundown counties. I had no idea sundown counties were, were a thing. I didn't learn about sundown counties until last year because I watched um, the HBO show that should have won movie that should have won that shouldn't have got canceled. But like so like and but now they're not even teaching. Now they're like now they're not even now they're definitely not teaching it. They weren't teaching it before, but now they're like purposely not teaching it. And I guess my question is like, how can we? One, how, I guess, how do we change that? But, like, also, how, how can we actually teach Black history and it not make it an elective? Because I remember in high school, you had to elect to teach Black... Like, you had to take an elective of Black history. Like, if you want to learn Black history, you got to take an elective. Meanwhile, other history, white people history, is like, no, nah, you got to pass that. You got to get an A in that class to graduate high school. But it's like, oh, no, if you want to learn about the plight of, of Black people, uh, you can... Take it's extra, take extra credit. And yeah. Some some black dude will teach, it. and a bunch of a bunch of woke white people will teach. Us, will go to the class to make them feel better. But but it's it's just like how do we how can we? I know that's a tough question to ask, but how, how is there any way we can first of all get rid of that all across the board the the critical race theory so we can actually teach it? But then 
actually teach it because they never taught it to begin with. Yeah. Well, so so critical race theory, it's not like a program or like a training or curriculum. It's actually like a way of thinking about the world and that, that they are banning in states like Florida and Texas. So it's like critical race theory is actually like a lot of what we've been talking about. It's like the the idea that racism is woven into um, the like systems, uh, uh, laws and policies of a of a place. Um, and so I feel like that's all we've been talking about. Heads up, everyone. We've been talking about critical race theory. Um, the So that's what it is. I think they're using it, to your point, to ban Black history, right? It's like if you can't talk about how red, racism is built into the laws of a country, you can't really talk about the abolition of slavery. Um, you can't really talk about, you know, um, Martin Luther King's work like it's like it's really it's a way for them to ban black history in the classroom and and they're doing that because their kids are coming home and saying hey this thing you said is racist and so I think I think you you hit the the nail on the head Akeem is like we have to defend black history in the schools because they're not saying that they're going to ban black history but essentially that's what they're doing um and in a lot of ways our schools were actually teaching you know, at least the, during the month of February, Black history was being taught as part of history. Um, and now these laws are, are, are really jeopardizing. Yeah, dude, my, I went to school in Florida and I, I, what I learned in school in Florida is that the Civil War was about states' rights. That's what I learned. And it took like, it took me finding James Baldwin on my own <laughs> to learn about so much more than that. Like there was, it was through my own, like, and it wasn't even like, we didn't even have black, we didn't have black, or like African-American studies as an elective at my school. We didn't even have that as an option. So it wasn't even available. Um, it was, it all had to be through your, your own research and, um, in the, I mean, even w- between that and the book banning, it's just like, it just seems like they want people to be as ignorant as humanly possible. And it's unfortunate that it's like, oh, my child is criticizing me. And instead of me looking within and going, oh, maybe what I said was racist, I would rather them just not know, have information of how the world actually was. Like, how much of a pussy do you have to be where you can't even look within at all? Um, because you're being criticized. Because I mean, there was, I saw a lot of that, like, especially after George Floyd, there was like a ton of people on uh, social media recording them talking to their parents about race and their parents being ignorant. And like, because again, it's just like, if you're taught like, no, it, it was all ended when Abraham Lincoln saved them. So it's all done. It's all over with. So you're good. I don't know why they're always complaining. It's just like, you have all of these ignorant takes and it's just, there's misinformation. And then there's no, there's no follow-up. Once you turn, you like, you take the information, the misinformation you are given, and then you put on blinders for the rest of your life. It's like, yeah, of course, that's why you sound stupid. That's why your kid's making you look stupid is because you refuse to learn anything else. Yeah, I think there's a real like danger for white parents in particular, because because I came to your point, like black kids in America, like statistically understand racism by the time they're six years old. Because they've experienced it, unfortunately. Yeah, because they've experienced it or a parent has talked to them about it. Right. And so there's a danger here for white parents of like your kids are going to get left behind. Like everyone else in the country is going to understand this and they're not. And that's a danger. I think to your question, though, about like what to do about it is not sexy, but like the elections are coming. Um, And, uh, you know, the school boards are elected officials like the people 
signing this, like bringing this stuff into law initially are elected officials. So it's like, okay, gosh, you got to pay attention to the school board election now in your town. Like, you know, Senate is super important. The midterms are coming. Like those are the people that are actually signing this into state law. And so, and so there's a piece here where like, again, around accountability, like we can't let these people be reelected if they're banning black history in like Texas, where there's so many black folks, you know, it's like, there has to be a level of accountability and that, and, and that can come through the elections. You know, I haven't asked you this yet, but where are you residing? Like, where do you, where are you? <laughs> I physically, I am in upstate New York. Well, I'm an hour outside of New York City on a farm that my husband and I bought. So, or like, can you so, say so, where or what area? Uh, we're in Pauling, New York. Oh, because maybe I should look for a home there. I've been looking for, no, I've been looking for homes. I, is that near Kingston or? No, it's an hour. Yeah, Holmes is it? Yeah, it's near Kingston. We're like maybe thirty oh, minutes. Nice. Is there nice? Do you think I should get a home there? What do you think? I mean, it's okay. You know, I'm in Trump country. You know, you got to prepare yourself. You leave New York City, and like, uh, it's there's there's a lot of uh, adversity, but it's good here. I mean, you know, I chose my we chose our home. Uh, we looked at hate crime statistics and all this stuff, and found the place with the. We we only looked in places with small numbers. Isn't it wild that we we have to do that? <laughs> I never even thought about I that. I mean, it is, but we're like a little bit more safe. You know, it's, it wasn't a huge margin, but we're slightly more safe. Because and where it. did you find that the hate crime? Did you just Google hate crime in the area, and then you, and it came up? Yeah, it's public. It's public information. So if you look up like hate crime statistics, you can find it for your community. Or you can you can also search like map heat maps of it. Now I do have these other articles, but you're so much more interesting. So I'm just asking <laughs> you these questions because it just comes up as I um I mean I could go into the the January sixth committee um for G- what's happening, but I, you know I feel like that's kind of an obvious like it's it feels like it's going to be a TV show unless like it'll be a TV show. Yeah. I mean, the thing with January 6th, we already talked about the algorithms on social media. Honestly, like from our perspective at Color of Change, you know, that insurrection happened because of Facebook, because of Facebook's um, algorithms. And so there's there's a piece where like we, you could talk about those algorithms when it comes to shadow boxing comedians, but they actually also play a role in something like an insurrection because of what Facebook allows to circulate and how they promote content on the channels. It's the exact same system that creates the space for both of those things. And now Obama is also finally talking and tackling disinformation, failing to, when he was in office, to fully understand what was going on because he was a tech guy. Mm-hmm. He was into the tech. I remember that. I remember thinking, oh, he's kind of a cool president because he he knows he about tweets. how to tweet mm-hmm. and Google and all of that. And I felt like he was sort of like able to manipulate the algorithms in a sense on his own. It was an advantage for him. But now looking at it, he's talking out and says, Former President Obama gave an hour-long speech on disinformation last week. It wasn't just a one-off. Sources around him say the speech was part of an ongoing conversation. The former president plans to continue in the coming months. In the last year, Obama has had meetings with academics, activists, media executives, and former government officials to discuss disinformation, including with color of change. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, we were. Well, so we were just with Obama last week at Stanford University. 
Uh, I did not get to. No, I mean, I put we had other spokespeople that, you know, I prepped <laughs> to speak direct with Obama. I'm not I'm not that high up just yet. I'm getting there one day. But we were we were there. He had a whole convention about this. Stanford. And, you know, I think the work that he's doing is really great. Obama brings a lot of attention, you know, to the issues that he highlights. And and so I think like, you know, the what this comes down to is like the fate of our democracy. Like, it shouldn't be susceptible to like the whims of these billionaires and corporations who like, don't really know the difference between freedom and harm, right? Is like, they, it, it can't, we can't leave it up to that. And so I don't think Obama is going to say this outright, but like our position at Color of Change is we need federal legislation for the tech companies to be held accountable to like what is good for all of us. They're not going to do it themselves. They're, you know, they there's not a profit incentive for them to do this, to make these shifts themselves. But our government should protect us. And, and it's not doing that right now. I wonder if they could give him like some sort of incentive of like either transparency or like if if like if we live in a capitalist society, if money is what matters, then they should either get either like a a tax write off for being uh, transparent or not being harmful <laughs> to human beings. Like there's got to be some sort of monetarily uh, beneficial for them to do the right thing because that's how they. That's the only reason they ever do it is if it benefits them. Is that America? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just what are you I'm talking just speaking about? American terms. <laughs> then incentives to do the right thing has never been America. That's does this America's incentive is to do the wrong thing as we've as we've seen. I mean, with Twitter and um, mm-hmm. Elon Musk, that must have been an eye opening moment for color of change, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, they can they buy and sell each other. I mean, this happens on a less dramatic scale, sort of all the time. Honestly, the Elon Musk stuff was was interesting uh, for all the like comedy tweets that came out of it, of like you know buying Coca Cola so he put the Coke back into it, stuff like that is is just interesting that the public understands just how powerful these people are, like. You know, these billionaires can do whatever the hell they want. $256 billion is how much he has. That I didn't even realize that was a number that you can have. That's, uh, uh, that is wild that he has $246 billion. $246 or $256 And can't pay their workers a minimum wage. And oh, okay. And can't pay his workers. Because yeah, why would you? You got to keep that $256 billion. Yeah, and uh, he probably paid eleven dollars in taxes. Man, he must have had a raise from last year. Does he have a girlfriend? Not anymore. They broke up. Um, you know what's funny is I was I have to claim ignorance on this one. I had no. I I just tweeted it out. Maybe I could finally get verified because I was like totally clueless to the disrupt, like how awful it was. But and then what was great about social media was all of the tweets, like you said, that were shining a light on how awful this actually is because i was just like oh i've never twitter has never verified me so now i can finally get maybe verified but then i looked at how he he trashes the democrats he trashes like what he calls what he considers to be cancel culture which i always find that so fascinating when white men talk about cancel culture because they don't want us to talk about black history 
but we're canceling them every step of the way, but they don't want our books in the schools. And I'm like, who's really canceling who? I don't, I don't know. Call me Marina Franklin. Megan the Stallion details the shooting incident, and then we're going to get out. But I could talk to you, Amity. I could talk to you forever. Um, I feel like this is not really a topic for you, but I, I it's it's interesting. Um, rap superstar Megan the Stallion has officially gone on record with her full account of what transpired the night she was shot. She explains the events leading up to July 12th incident in which rapper Tori Lanez um, allegedly attacked Megan Thee Stallion. I know I say Megan Thee Stallion <laughs> like a white woman. Don't, please don't make fun of me. With a loaded fire, were you, were you seeing it? You were hearing no, it? I was going to correct you and say it's Tory Lanez. Lanez. What did I say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a house head. I'm not into him. You can tell. This, thank You're you. Welcome. Thank you, Akeem. Is Tory, is Tory Lanez? It's Tory Lanez. Wait, how is- it's like Lane. lanes, like switching lanes, Tory lanes. Oh my God. With rich rap. Oh, I'm so awful. I was so scared to read this for that reason. It was like, it's just all going to come out. My, my inability. Um, but this is a very serious issue. Megan confides in an interview with Gail King on CBS Morning that because of the shooting, she finds it hard to connect with people and has heightened anxiety, anxiety and hypervigilance when surrounded by new people. Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, I would be too. Shit. Getting shot would give me some trust issues too. I mean, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) No, that was good. (laughs) Megan Megan also reveals that she didn't do anything for this to happen. She never touched anyone or yelled at anyone. And after the incident, Tori Lings was apologetic, immediately begging her and her friend Harris not to tell anyone what had occurred, even offering that each of them. I think this speaks to kind of like if you were to wrap this back into our conversation about how, you know, when we do get money um, and we surround ourselves with people, you have to really be careful with who you allow into your circle. I mean, I think it's like you said earlier about there should be someone as far as like a financial advisor attached to musicians and artists. And I definitely see this with black entertainers where, you know, where does the money go? How does it disappear? And who you're surrounded by, you know, uh, throw in a therapist in there, throw in, you know, real security. Yeah. So we, we actually did campaign around this. The perspective we took is that, you know, I think, she was so brave to come out and tell her story. And the reason that's brave is because the media typically like centers violence in the storytelling. So you can't see a story about Megan Thee Stallion now without reading that this happened to her, right? As if it is the only thing of note. Um, And so what we've been doing is actually going into newsrooms and training reporters um, to, to how to, protect black survivors in their coverage when it's a, you know, an incident happens and they're covering it. Even like the language they use is like, if you read through this stuff, you'll see they use a lot of passive language. Something happened versus someone did something to some, to, to a black person. So yeah, we've been going in and, and actually correcting stories uh, for the news outlets that are covering what happened to her so that they don't do this again, because it's just, if you read the coverage, it's just really unacceptable. Um, and I think that's 
that is what we have to do is like we have to protect black survivors. We have to teach the people who are causing harm, like additional harm after an incident like this, that like it's one, it's not acceptable. People notice and two, that they can actually change. Wow. That's wonderful. Yeah. Cause it is a victim story. It's, it's, it's interesting when something does happen to us, specifically black women, how it disappears. It just disappears. It's like, we're talking about, you know, the basketball player. Is it Griner or Grinner? I've been saying it wrong. I'm pretty sure in Russia. I don't know sports. Oh yeah. You know, that's basketball player, female basketball player, LGBTQ community. You should know this, Akeem. But I don't know sports. I'm not a sporty gay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the fact that you don't know it is is problematic. She got arrested uh, supposedly for having weed in Russia, which is like some big crime there. And while the U.S. has been like bringing home other prisoners from Russia during the war, no one is talking about her. Like it's only on Twitter that I've seen it. Like, like no one is trying to get her home. Even as they get other American prisoners back, um, and it's just been disgusting. Yes, yeah, she's black, black woman, yeah. yeah. Woman. Mm-hmm. And you're right. And I've seen them make last week. I was watching a story on ABC with David Muir about them bringing home a young. I mean, he needed to come home. He was, you know, sick. You could see it. But alongside with that, they really need to focus on this woman. It's like you have to put this should be in the news all the time. She, you know, she's an American hostage in Russia right now. That's what it is. And it's about our value. It really is. It represents how valuable. If that was a, a blonde lady over there. You better believe it would be in the mm-hmm. headlines every mm-hmm. single day. It wouldn't have to be in the headlines. They would have just brought her home because they know that. Yeah. She'd be at home yelling yeah. at some black person <laughs> in the grocery store. 100%. She'd be living her best life. This has been an amazing conversation. You know, I'm going to start with you, Carmen, because you're doing something really incredible. You want to tell us, our listeners, what it is. So tell our listeners what you're doing and then tell them where they can find you. On uh, May 6th on HBO Max, I'm having my like a special debut it's um it's me and another uh latinx comedian alfred robles our we have uh, our 15 a 15 minute special coming out and it's called entrenos and um it's a like an organization that um has been like lifting latinx voices like through entertainment and they've done a really rad job like I, I absolutely adore the producers and like everything that they're working towards and um, and they're rad and it's uh, it comes out uh, so you can you can see my stand up um, which was is funnier than I was on this podcast I, I promise um, but we were talking about, <laughs> I know but we that's what I'm saying we we're talking about serious shit it's uh, it's hard to always make light <laughs> um, it's a it's a it's it's meant to be that way because I think. People often get the funny only side mm-hmm. of comics, but we got a lot of intelligence yeah. there. But go ahead. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so that comes out May 6th on HBO Max. You can uh, stream it anywhere. Uh, if you don't have HBO Max, you know, use somebody somebody else's login. I'm, I, I get it if you don't have the money. Um, but if you do, uh, get it. Uh, but yeah, it's called Entrenos. E-N-T-R-E-N-O-S. Nice. And uh, with friends like us, um, you get to have the time of your life. Nice. Thank you. Akeem? Um, you can find me on akeemwoods.com. All my tour dates are on 
that, akeemwoods.com, A-K-E-E-M woods.com. Uh, next week, I'll be in Minneapolis opening for Jackie Fabulous at Camp Bar. Uh, the tickets are also on my website, so akeemwoods.com. You can buy tickets for that show. Social media is also Akeem Woods, Instagram, all that stuff. Uh, if you're gay and single, DM me Akeem Woods, A-K-E-E-M. Anyway. I'm always real. I'm always real. <laughs> I'm trying to get booed up. Um, <laughs> and um, with friends like us, you'll always be happy. You will. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Amity? If you want to find more about Color of Change or get involved or start your own campaign, uh, you can find us at colorofchange.org. If you're in an entertainment industry, so if you're in music or in Hollywood and you're looking for sort of the tangible ways to make change, you can go to changeindustries.org, which has our roadmaps to racial justice, um, but also a whole one, a whole bunch of resources that you can use to actually just start the work yourself. Yeah, with friends like us, you can change anything. Yes! Oh my God, this was such a great conversation. Marina Franklin here. Go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And with friends like us, you can have a whole group of new friends together and learn how to how to make that change happen in real time. I want to thank you all. Check, Check us out! out.